This devotional address with BYU President Kevin J. Worthen and Sister Peggy Worthen was given on January 10th, 2023. Today we are blessed to hear from President and Sister Worthen. The Worthens were both raised in Price, Utah and began dating after President Worthen returned from serving a mission to Monterey, Mexico, and while both were attending the College of Eastern Utah. The Worthens were married in the Provo, Utah LDS Temple soon after they transferred from the College of Eastern Utah to attend BYU. Early in their marriage, Sister Worthen worked to support their family as President Worthen finished his education and began his career. She then resumed her education after their youngest child started school and subsequently earned her degree in English from BYU in 2003. Sister Worthen has a variety of interests, from cougar sports to reading, spending time with her grandchildren. She is also an example of a lifelong learner and regularly takes classes on campus. Brigham Young University has influenced and shaped much of President Worthen's life. He also grew up an avid sports fan and earned both his bachelor's degree in political science and his Juris Doctorate degree from BYU. After two clerkships in Washington, D.C. and practicing law in Arizona, he began teaching in the J. Reuben Clark Law School in 1987 and later serves as the dean of the law school from 2004 to 2008. President Worthen then served as the Advancement Vice President prior to becoming the 13th President of Brigham Young University on May 1, 2014. President and Sister Worthen are the parents of two sons and a daughter, and they have seven grandchildren. And they currently teach the 16- and 17-year-old Sunday School class in their home ward. And now Sister Worthen. Have you ever suffered from logocophosis? I have. One example. Early in our marriage, while Kevin was pursuing his education here at BYU, I needed to find a job. Fortunately, I was able to get an interview for a position for which I felt qualified. I showed up at the appointed time. I was directed into the office of my potential employer, who graciously greeted me and kindly asked me to be seated while he took his seat behind his desk. We exchanged pleasantries. Things were going well. Then he began at length, and I feel it necessary to emphasize at length, to inform me about the position in which I could potentially be employed. It was my responsibility to stay focused and pay attention, but I wasn't doing a very good job of it. I don't know. It may have been a combination of several things—a comfortable chair, the pleasant room temperature, the steady, even voice of the interviewer, or the interesting memorabilia in the office that became somewhat of a distraction to me while he spoke. Maybe it was because he was a math professor explaining some of his work, and math and I have had a long and not so pleasant history. Whatever the case, the next thing I knew, I realized that he had stopped talking and I had no idea what he had just finished saying. There was complete awkward silence. I snapped out of what I would best describe as a stupor of thought and figured that I needed to say something. So trying to save face and say something clever 
I heard myself speak the five-word question you should never ask in a one-on-one -on -one interview with a potential employer. Are you talking to me? <laughs> you may not be surprised to know that I didn't get that job. <laughs> Why? Because I had temporarily suffered a bout of logocophosis during the interview. Logocophosis is a real medical condition in which one lacks the ability to comprehend spoken language. Its literal Greek origin means word deafness. My bout of logocophosis was not brought on by any physical malady. Rather, it was self-inflicted. I allowed myself to turn a deaf ear to the valuable words that were being spoken to me in that interview. I didn't even try to understand. I had graciously been given the time for an interview, and I was, to say the least, a very unsuccessful listener. I was suffering from logocophosis. In a general conference addressed several years ago, Elder Jacob D. Yager explained the meaning of logocophosis in a gospel context. He defined logocophosis as the inability to hear or understand spoken directions, especially divine directions. He emphasized that the scriptures are replete with directions spoken by holy prophets in all dispensations, and that the voice of the Lord is unto the ends of the earth, that all that will hear may hear. Yet time and again, he explained, we suffer from spiritual logocophosis, and we have to be asked to be better listeners he quoted President Marion G. Romney, who asked, How many tailings does it take? How many repetitions of counsel? How many individual corrections must be given? Overcoming logocophosis, whatever the context, is essential if we want to succeed in the classroom, in our chosen occupation, or any other good path we may follow. Most importantly, we need to overcome spiritual logocophosis to become better disciples of Christ and to respond to President Nelson's call to assist in gathering Israel. In other words, if we suffer from spiritual logocophosis, we cannot achieve exaltation without overcoming that challenge and becoming a better listener. Too often we ask God, are you talking to me? That question is as unproductive in the gospel context as it is in a one-on-one -on -one interview. When it comes to God and His prophets, we should assume He is talking to us because He clearly is, and we should listen. What causes us to suffer from spiritual logocophosis? Why do we sometimes turn a deaf ear and not listen to the counsel of the Lord? My failed interview provides several possibility, possibilities. Perhaps it's because we are too uncomfortable in our current situation, sorry, we are too comfortable in our current situation, or maybe it's because we are focused on all the distractions that surround us. Maybe it is because, like math was for me, the subject is not one we enjoy. Whatever the cause, spiritual logocophosis is debilitating and causes us to miss out on wonderful opportunities. The Book of Mormon contains several examples of individuals who failed to achieve their divine potential 
and obtain heavenly blessings because of spiritual logokophosis. The first that come to mind are Laman and Lemuel. Time and time again, these brothers were deaf to the spiritual words given to them. They assumed that God was speaking to someone else and not to them. They complained to Nephi, Behold, we cannot understand the words which our father Lehi hath spoken. Yet when Nephi responded, Have you inquired of the Lord? They said unto Nephi, We have not. Laman and Lemuel suffered logophosis because they did not even, under, even try to understand or hear the still voice of the Lord. Indeed, they reached the point that even though they had seen an angel and heard God's voice, they were past feeling and could not feel his words. Alma the younger and the four sons of Mosiah also suffered from spiritual logokophosis. They set out to destroy the church by leading astray the people of the Lord, contrary to the commandments of God and even the king. They purposefully were deaf to the words of God and the laws of the land. They rejected their Redeemer and denied that which had been spoken of by their fathers. However, we can find hope from Alma and his colleagues who were able to overcome their logokophosis. Due to divine intervention and in answer to the prayers of Alma's father, they were brought to the knowledge of the truth or the word of God through the angel of the Lord who appeared unto them and spake as it were, were with a voice of thunder which caused the earth to shake upon which they stood. From this experience, these young men finally understood that God's words apply to them, and they ultimately repented and accepted the corrections that were given to them. After successfully overcoming their spiritual logokophosis, they tried to help others who were suffering from the same malady. They began from that time forward to teach the people through all the land the things which they heard and seen preaching the word of God. So, how do we follow Alma's example? This question is especially important in our current time and place, which President Nelson has duly described. We live in a time prophesied long ago when all things shall be in commotion, and surely men's hearts shall fail them. For fear shall come upon all people. Commotion in the world will continue to increase. In contrast, the voice of the Lord is not a voice of a great tumultuous noise, but it is a still voice of perfect mildness, like a whisper, and it pierces even to the very soul. President Nelson then provided one important key to defeating our potential spiritual deafness. In order to hear this still voice, you must be still. In other words, for us to overcome spiritual logokophosis, we need to constantly and deliberately turn our attention to our Heavenly Father's words. This is why President Nelson implores each one of us to discipline ourselves to have time alone. Open your heart to God in prayer. Take time to immerse yourself in the scriptures and worship in the temple. We need not suffer from spiritual logokophosis. We need not ask whether God is speaking to us. He always is. We just need to be better and more deliberate listeners. As we strive to internalize and follow the counsel he provides through scriptures, through living prophets, and through personal revelations, we will be successful in school, at work, and in our quest for 
perfection. Maybe, may we so be blessed is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Encountering, encountering a new year can be both exhilarating and overwhelming. As we imagine what lies ahead, one of the few certainties is that some things will be uncertain. In the challenging times in which we live, such uncertainty can sometimes be anxiety-inducing, almost paralyzing. If you find yourself in that position, if uncertainty threatens to overwhelm you, as it does all of us from time to time, I invite you to tap into the power of promises. I believe we vastly underestimate the importance and power of promises in our lives, especially in, in uncertain times and situations. Political philosopher Hannah Arendt observed that promises are the uniquely human way of ordering the future, making it predictable and reliable to the extent that, that this is humanly possible. The belief that we can rely on promises creates the kind of trust that allows us to order our relationships, whether they be economic, political, or intimate. It also allows us to order our day-to-day -day lives in ways that we often take for granted. But not all promises have equal value. Some of the most common promises we make at this time of year are resolutions, a form of what philosophers call self-promises. For many of us, this is the least reliable promise. In fact, philosophers heatedly debate whether the moral obligations that attach to most promises even apply to things like New Year's resolutions. Because with self-promising resolutions, the promisee and the promisor are the same person. As Thomas Hobbes put it, he that is bound to, him, to himself only is not bound. Thus, many view New Year's resolutions as what the fictitious nanny philosopher Mary Poppins called pie-crust promises, easily made, easily broken. Not so much resolutions as casual promises to myself that I am under no legal obligation to fulfill. <laughs> now, I, I'm not discouraging or disparaging New Year's resolutions. I would hope that each of us is constantly striving to assess and improve our lives, and New Year's resolutions can be an effective way of engaging in that process. However, if we rely exclusively or primarily on our own self-promises, we will not be fully utilizing the power of promises in our lives. Some more reliable promises take the form of legally binding contracts, where the promisee can invoke the judicial system to ensure that the promise is kept. But even these promises have their limits, for there are situations in which the law will not require adherence to the terms of a contract. So legally binding contracts, while valuable to society, are not the most powerful form of promise. A higher form of promise, one that is more sure and powerful than New Year's resolutions, legally binding contracts, or any other form of promise, is a promise made by God. God's promises are more certain and therefore more powerful than any promise made by any mortal being. We can rely on God's promises not because they are enforceable in a court of law or through social or moral pressure, but because God is God, a being who the scriptures tell us lieth not, but fulfilleth all his words. Because God is both perfectly honest and all-powerful, there is no chance that his promises, his words, will not come to pass. His words automatically turn into action. When he says, let there be light, light appears. 
When he promises something, it will happen. That is the power of God's promises. Because he so deeply wants us to rely on his most important promises, God confirms them with an oath, a unilateral declaration of intent to keep a promise. As Paul put it in Hebrews, God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. More specifically, Paul notes, when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he sware by himself. In other words, God provides his status as God, his godhood, he puts on the line, as a surety or warranty that he will keep his promises. No guarantee of a promise could be more reliable. As the primary song reminds us, we are children of God and his promises are sure. But God's promises, like God himself, operate in accordance with eternal laws. We there have to do, therefore have to do our part to receive the blessings of his promises. As he stated in the well-known promise in section 82 of the Doctrine and Covenants, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but when you do not what I say, ye have no promise. God's promises are found in the scriptures. They are contained in sacred temple ordinances, and they are also provided through God's living prophets. As God stated in his preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, what I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself. And though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or by the, by the voice of my servants, it is the same. This verse, coupled with the promise in section 82, provides great insight into a key source of God's promises for our specific time and place. As Elder David Hamilton in Area 70 recently explained, Drawing together the principles in these two verses assures us that as living prophets, seers, and revelators say, I promise, the Lord is bound by that promise if we live by the prerequisites upon which the promised blessings are predicated. With that in mind, I have paid particular attention the last few years when the words, I promise, are spoken by those 15 men who are prophets, seers, and revelators, especially President Russell M. Nelson, who is the Lord's prophet authorized to exercise all priesthood keys on earth. In the Sunday morning session of the first general conference at which President Nelson presided as president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, President Nelson stated, I promise that as you continue to be obedient, expressing gratitude for every blessing the Lord gives you, and as you patiently honor the Lord's timetable, you will be given the knowledge and understanding you seek. Every blessing the Lord has for you, even miracles, will follow. Notice the three-part pattern. Number one, the direct and specific expression, I promise. Number two, the identification of the prerequisites for obtaining the blessings. In this case, being obedient, expressing gratitude for every blessing the Lord gives you, and patiently honoring the Lord's timetable. And number three, the description of the promised blessings. In this case, knowledge and understanding you seek, and every blessing the Lord has for you, even miracles. Since that time, by my count, President Nelson has made 16 other specific promises in his general conference addresses following the same pattern of an express promise that if certain prerequisites are met, specific blessings will ensue, often more than one blessing. 
That is a total of 17 specific general conference prophetic promises made in our time by President Nelson in the last five years. Let me suggest that deep study and application of these 17 prophetic promises will provide the direction, peace, strength, and increased faith you will need to face challenges and, and uncertainties during this coming year and beyond. A partial list of the promised blessings should provide ample incentive for such an undertaking. Consider, for example, the first blessing promised in President Nelson's April 2018 General Conference Address, the knowledge and understanding you seek. I suppose at one time or another, each of us engaged in this academic enterprise, whether as students, faculty, or staff, would find this promised blessing of great benefit in the, just in the coming semester. But the other 16 prophetic promises contain numerous other important blessings, including, but not limited to, increased faith and decreased fear, joy amidst uncertainty, a burst of spiritual momentum, greater courage, additional power to deal with temptations, struggles, and weakness, increased inspiration and revelation, and improved ability to hear him, greater unity in your families, greater rest, greater peace, miracles, wouldn't we all want to have each of these blessings in our lives? They are each made available with all the surety and promise that the living authorized spokesman for God can provide. As we study these promises and, and act to make them operative in our lives, we will be changed in remarkable ways. As you engage in this process, take special note of the different actions that you must take to receive the different blessings. You will notice that four different sets of promises relate to temple worship. Three, to using the correct name of the church. Three, to increasing our ability to receive inspiration. And two, to shifting to a more home-centered gospel learning mode. That emphasis may, pro may provide some insight into what gospel activities ought to occupy our time and focus in the coming year. You will also notice that some promises build on one another. For example, in the April 2020 General Conference, President Nelson stated, I promise that as you increase your time in the temple and family history work, you will increase and improve your ability to hear him. Later in the same talk, that increased ability to hear the Lord became the prerequisite to other promised blessings. President Nelson said, as you more intentionally hear, hearken, and heed what the Savior has said and what he is saying now through his prophets, I promise that you will be blessed with additional power to deal with temptation, struggles, and weakness. I promise miracles in your marriage, family relationships, and daily work. And I promise that your capacity to feel joy will increase, even if turbulence increases in your life. Thus, temple work is linked to three other blessings that in succession flow from the increased ability to hear the Savior's voice that results from spending more time doing temple and family history work. One simple but powerful prophetically promised blessing thereby blooms into three deeper and more specific blessings. Now, just as one prerequisite can give rise to several different promised blessings, there are several kinds of promised blessings that result from more than one prerequisite activity. For example, five different prophetic pronouncements provide assurance that meeting, dif meeting different individual prerequisites will result in increased ability to receive revelation and inspiration. The separate prerequisites for that one particular blessing vary 
ranging from powerful, prayerful study of the Book of Mormon to increased time in temple and family history work to increased desire and ability to obey the laws of God. Similarly, four separate general conference prophetic declarations promise an increase in faith or a decrease in fear, which I believe are essentially the same thing. After all, as President Gordon B. Hinckley once observed, fear is the antithesis of faith. Again, the prerequisites for that particular promised blessings vary, ranging from rigorous attention to use the correct name of the Savior's church, to beginning anew to hear, hearken to, and heed the words of the Savior, to creating places of security, preparing our minds to be faithful to God and never stop preparing. At first glance, some may find the fact that more than one prerequisite act is associated with one particular blessing is discouraging. Viewing it as a cumulative list of things, each of which must be met before the promised blessing comes to pass. But I believe just the opposite is true. Compliance with any one of these particular prerequisites is enough to bring forth the promised blessing. God is so anxious to bless us that he provides numerous ways to qualify for a particular blessing, though the blessing can certainly be enhanced through adherence to each of the particular prerequisites. Moreover, there is likely a link between the different prerequisite acts that lead to a particular blessing. For example, prayerful study of the Book of Mormon will likely increase one's desire and ability to obey God's law and to spend more time in temple and family history work each of which is a prerequisite to the promised increased ability to receive and recognize revelation. God is remarkably efficient and remarkably generous. One promised blessing contained in three different prophetic promises from President Nelson is miracles. The first time President Nelson promised miracles was in the very first general conference he presided over as president of the church. I promise, he said, that as you continue to be obedient, expressing gratitude for every blessing the Lord gives you, and as you patiently honor the Lord's timetable, every blessing the Lord has for you, even miracles will follow. The second time miracles were promised came in the next general conference in October 2018. I urge you to find a way to make an appointment regularly with the Lord, to be in his holy house, and then keep that appointment with exactness and joy. I promise, he said, I promise you that the Lord will bring you the miracles he knows you need. Notice the direct tie to temple attendance, including making an appointment that is kept with exactness. Note also the more specific promise, not just that miracles will follow, but that the Lord will bring the miracles he knows we need. The latter is much more important than the former. The third promise of miracles came two years later in the Sunday morning session of the April 2020 General Conference. In that session, President Nelson stated, as you more intentionally hear, hearken, and heed what the Savior has said and what he is saying now through his prophets, I promise miracles in your marriage, family relationships, and daily work. Note the specific settings in which the miracles are promised to occur. In our day-to-day -day activities, and in our most important relationships. We live in a time and setting where many scoff at, the, scoff at the possibility that miracles are real, and yet they very often happen around, right around us without our notice. Just two years ago at a BYU devotional, Elder David A. Bednar powerfully reminded us that as promised in the Book of Mormon, miracles have not ceased. He cited simple examples that occurred in a few-day period when temple work was about to be suspended in one area during the pandemic. 
These were miracles involving seemingly small things, which some would consider coincidences, but which were, for those involved, faith-strengthening reminders of God's love for them. Miracles. Some 30 years earlier, in their last BYU devotional, Rex and Janet Lee taught the same principle, noting that because we tend to think of miracles in terms of history-making dramatic events for which there is no mortal explanation, we sometimes forget that miracles come in all sizes, and that very often these more individually focused miracles come in ways that we may not recognize unless our spirits are particularly attuned to recognize them. In that light, President Nelson's exhortation this past April for all of us to seek and expect miracles takes on deeper meaning. Miracles are more common than we often recognize, and the angels who bring them often reside on this side of the veil. Prophetic promises identify ways in which we can more readily recognize and benefit from those miracles. Let me share a small personal example involving you, or at least someone like you. Some time ago, I had one of those days where nothing seemed to be going right. The issues I was facing seemed to have no solutions. No one seemed happy with what was happening, and I was completely unsure why I was in the position I am in. Fortunately, those kinds of days are rare, but this was one of them. I just wanted to go home and be left alone. However, several weeks earlier, Peggy and I had made an appointment to attend a temple session that evening. I recall hearing in my head President Nelson urging us to not only make an appointment to be in the Lord's house, but also to keep that appointment with exactness and joy. So I went to the temple, trying to be joyful and pleading to know what to do and what to feel and to feel what I needed to feel. I felt calmer during the endowment session, but I was still somewhat unsettled when the session ended. Peggy and I spent some time in the celestial room talking about tender mercies she had encountered in the session. Then a young couple came over and introduced themselves as BYU students. They just wanted to thank us for all that we did to make BYU a great place. They were full of joy and gratitude. It was clear that BYU had impacted them in a powerful way. This was its own tender mercy, maybe a miracle to me. Later, after changing into my street clothes and heading to the lobby to leave, I thought I should add someone's name to the prayer roll, a practice I usually follow. At first, I thought, no name comes to mind. Maybe I should just skip it this time. But I thought, surely someone can use a temple blessing. So I went over to the area where there are both individual slips of paper and a notepad for adding names to the prayer roll. I wrote a name on one slip and put it into the box. I then glanced down at the list of names that had been entered by different people on the notepad. I usually pay no attention to that list, but for some reason this time, I scanned the list. And part way down, I saw my name, Kevin Worthen. I was almost overcome. Someone, maybe one of the students in the celestial room, had entered my name on the prayer roll that day. 
I felt a feeling of complete peace and a deep reassurance that everything would work out, and it did. Some might think it was just a coincidence that someone wrote down my name on the prayer roll list that day, and that weeks earlier I had made an appointment to attend the temple on that day, and that on that day I happened to glance at the list. But for me, it was a miracle. One God knew I needed, and one which, consistent with President Nelson's promise, God provided. And so to paraphrase the well-known hymn, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet whose promises guide us in these latter days. And we thank thee for every blessing bestowed from heeding, heeding those prophetic promises. I promise that as you diligently study and apply the prophetic promises that the Lord has provided through President Nelson and the other living prophets, your ability to meet and benefit from the challenges and uncertainty you will face in the coming year will be greatly enhanced. Your life will be more joyful and productive, and you advance, will advance on the covenant path that will lead you to exaltation and a fullness of joy. That is my promise and my prayer for you in this coming year, which I offer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This devotional address with BYU President Kevin J. Worthen and Sister Peggy Worthen was given on January 10th, 2023. BYU Devotionals are a production of BYU Broadcasting.